Good morning. So the the Opportunity Fund is for us an, an exciting way for us to look ahead and to plan ahead for what comes next in in us being able to support some other people. I don't know if you could see it from the back, but there was it said over the first three years, one hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars came from outside supporters to help this church get off the ground. So the first three year, years, we were heavily dependent on other people because we just, through the giving that was being generated from our own church, from our own committed people, was was just not enough to do all that was needed in those early years. And so we fundraised and God provided a fair amount of outside supporters. I remember uh, about nine years ago, when we were first planning and, and launching this church, some of those outside supporters, you saw that list scrolling, you maybe couldn't read it. Those were the names of the churches that supported us. Church in the Valley, we knew them very well because they sent us out. So they're in Diamond Bar. Hope Church, that was the church that planted Church in the Valley. They supported us. Uh, there was other churches, one in San Jose, one in El Monte. There was, But then there was a, a strange uh, call from a church in Tennessee. It was called Brentwood Baptist Church. And it was, I got the call. And uh, this guy said, hey, uh, my name is Scott Harris. I'm the missions pastor of a church in Tennessee. And we heard you're planting a church, and we want to give you guys $18,000. And we're like, whoa, okay. I mean, that was it was significant, especially then, because we were purchasing equipment. We wanted to, a lot of the equipment that we used was from those original, uh, that, those original equipment purchases. And so, now... I didn't know Brentwood Baptist Church. They, the missions pa- pastor happens to be my mentor, uh, Randy Lanthrop's second cousin. And so there's the connection. And uh, it's, it's providential though. You know, providence is, it's evidence that God's providing. The evidence that God is providing and the, the evidence that God was in the plan from the beginning. He positions people with resources and organizations and churches with resources to help fund His kingdom work. That's what God does. When He wants something done, He provides it. He, he has a way to, to put it on people's hearts to give. And so, for us, this is an opportunity for us to say regionally, we want to just have some money available to help with things that may either sprout up out of this place, ministries, churches, or things that we're connected to and we sense we want to get behind. Because we, I mean, how exciting for us it would be to be able to reciprocate a gift of that amount to other churches that are going out and to be able to call a planter and say, hey, here's $18,000. We've been saving this because we're excited about what God is doing. That's, that's thrilling to me. <laughs> I got all choked up in the last service and I'm going to try to hold it off this time because I don't know what to do when I cry. So, So, I think I got it together. But I I want to just urge you to, as you approach this Christmas time, just consider... You know, giving towards the Christmas offering. We're really trying to focus on some very important efforts. And so each week we'll highlight, you know, what they are. So that's, that's the regional effort, our opportunity fund. So let's pray together and uh, we'll continue. Father, thank you again for bringing us here. Thank you for this group that you've uh, assembled today. And thank you for the, the team that we are. And you continue to add to our team. And we're so grateful, Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, to see you work through the years. And to see life change occur in so many people's lives, 
Lord, to see the process of change in each of us, God, as you just, you've drawn us to, to know you and to, to walk with you. For those that have not yet come to know you, Lord, I pray you continue to draw their hearts um, to the new life that is in Christ. And Lord, thank you for the season and all that we remember at Christmas time, Lord. We are so grateful for the gift of Jesus and how you have changed us through, uh, through him, through forgiveness that he offers. And God, I pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, as we continue to look at some of the, the challenges that block our progress in life, Lord. We ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're two weeks into this message series called, uh, what's it called? It's called The Caught in the Undertow. <laughs> and you see this Christmas wave coming, and this is what happens at Christmas time, is there's waves of things that come, and we don't always recognize it, and we get hit by these things, and it, it hits our emotions, it hits our, uh, it hits our lives, and, and how do we prepare for it? So Christmas time is intended to be that season where we remember the, the real meaning, the true meaning of God's of Christmas, you know, God sending Jesus to earth. That's what we want to, you know, have capture us at this time. But so often, this can be a time so full of busyness and stress and, and, and all that stuff just hits us and we, we can be robbed of the meaning that we, we want to experience at this point. Last week we talked about the wave of demand. Our own expectations clash with other people's expectations, creating a wave of demand that can rob us of joy. This week we're going to look at the wave of comparison. And so, the truth is this, and I invite you to take out this uh, listening guide, and you can follow along. The wave of comparison, it builds during the holidays, and it boosts some things. It boosts envy and discontent. This is one of those waves, the wave of comparison. And if you're familiar with our California coastline, at the winter time, the waves are bigger. At the winter time in Hawaii, the waves are bigger. The big wave come, the big waves come at the winter time. That's when the swell is up. And so, it's also true when we think about the wave of comparison. During Christmas time, this issue is consistently a larger problem and challenge than the rest of the year. We may face comparison challenges and struggles. Most of us do. But at Christmas time, it just kind of builds even larger because we feel condensed and compressed into these, you know, couple of months around the holidays that we just feel pressure. And so, I want to illustrate some of the pressure we feel and with comparison by briefly looking at uh, a famous wave on our coastline. It's at Newport Beach, and so this is the wedge. Okay, now the wedge is a very famous shore break that is that it breaks. Uh, right on the sand. It's sort of a crazy wave to attempt to surf. And so this guy, you know, he's got some guts to, to, to do this. I mean, look at how shallow this water is. It's like, you know, maybe just a few feet and then, uh, you know, and then he's in ankle deep water. And so, if you wipe out at the wedge, it's, it's really not deep enough to support, you know. <laughs> so, you can't just, you're going to pay for it when you wipe out at the wedge. And so people break their arms at the wedge. They break their legs. They, they or worse, their neck. And, and so um, I read that by 2013, it had paralyzed 35 people at the wedge. Does it hold people back? 
No. <laughs> when the swell is up, huge crowds, they gather to watch the surfers, bodyboarders, the skimboarders. This was actually first made popular through bodyboarding and skimboarding. But surfers thought, oh, we can ride that. There's a wave, we can ride that. And so the brave surfers, they give it a try. Um, but here's a picture of the crowd. And this is, I think, why so many people want to surf the wedge when it's big, is because the crowd comes out and they're right there spectating And so you're performing in front of hundreds of spectators and in front of the news media because there's always a news van there watching to see these guys drop drop in. And your life is in real danger and and they can get huge like this wave right here. Now that's not a frog. That's a person on a bodyboard dropping down. (laughs) You see the guy? He's dropping in at the top of that wave. I mean, he's just going straight down. Uh, we've seen things like this at the wedge, and it's, it's, I, I, it is, it is insane. I, and I'm sure some of the injuries that occur at the wedge were from people on the shore who've bodyboarded or surfed, and they're like, you know, they got their girlfriend, and they're like, "Baby, I could do that. Like that ain't nothing." You know, and they're thinking in their mind, "Doesn't look that big." You know, I've ridden a five footer. Seven foot wave. You know, what's the difference between, you know, that and a 15 foot drop that these guys are doing? And you look around, there's all these crowds, and, you know, they're getting all the attention out there, and you're sitting on the shore, and you think, I, I could do this. I gotta get in the game. Now that thinking is costly. That thinking is responsible for, for why so many people get hurt at the wedge. Because there's a lot of people that want to surf the wedge that have no business surfing at the wedge. If I ever say, hey, I'm thinking about, just call me off, block me, Pop my tires. You know, don't let me do that because that's just, it's, it's ridiculous. But comparison, you start looking around, you look at yourself and I'm not getting that kind of attention in life. That's what comparison does. I'm not getting the kind of attention. I'm not getting the things that they're getting in life. And it draws us in, in dangerous ways, envy and all sorts of things. And so that, that's kind of an illustration about the wave of comparison. I want us to watch a video of an interview by Dr. Nathan Lewis. He's going to describe the effect of comparison and trace where it leads. Uh, Nathan, he's a longtime friend. He's a mentor to, to me. He's a member of our sponsor church, Church in the Valley. He's been working with people for over 35 years, helping people work through problems, trying to unwind problems and, and hurts in life. And he's also the director of the Graduate Program of Counseling Ministry at California Baptist University. And so he's going to talk in this interview for about five minutes about the effect of comparison on our relationships, specifically at Christmas time. So The day after Thanksgiving, I was on Facebook and Instagram, and several people have posted pictures of their trees being put up and decorations around the house. And I immediately felt some anxiety because I hadn't even begun to think about doing that yet. And I felt this uh, compulsion to then begin to do that. And some of you have probably had a similar kind of experience where you're comparing yourself to, to somebody else and then you feel this anxiety. Comparison is a normal part of everyday life. It's so natural we're not even aware of it, but what we are aware of is the anxiety that we feel when, when we make that comparison. And we make the comparisons because we're naturally insecure. We, we want to know that we are okay. And we believe that uh, our okayness is based on some standard of okayness that that comes from other people 
And so we compare ourselves to others hoping to reassure ourselves that we really are okay. But the problem with that, though, is that instead of reassuring us, um, observing and experiencing what other people are doing in comparison to us actually increases our anxiety because we will never quite measure up. There will always be somebody who has more, does more, is better, uh, is quicker than we are. So that that's a, a no-win a game that we play with ourselves. And this is exaggerated a um, hundredfold during the holidays. Uh, studies show that stress during the holidays increases and it's very different than stress that we experience at other times of the year. While people do report uh, it, it, it is the season to be jolly uh, feelings of love, happiness and high spirits uh, it's definitely higher stress time and people report more negative emotions as well and they, they, they have the Clark Griswold syndrome from Christmas vacation where everything has to be perfect for their families uh, but they experience emotions uh, like fatigue, stress, irritability, uh, bloating, sadness, anger, and loneliness. And basically, what happens is that the combined stresses of the holidays, increased expectations, working long hours, fighting traffic in crowds, finding time to fit shopping in, they, they act like, I, I, I think about in Christmas vacation when when the Griswolds find that perfect tree and the lights shine on it, this big giant spotlight shines on it, the hallelujah chorus plays. That's kind of what I think of when what the stresses do. The stresses are like a big spotlight on us that reveals and exaggerates the worries that we already have uh, and face every day. And that includes comparing ourselves to others. Several things can trigger that comparison during the holidays. Receiving a Christmas card the day after Thanksgiving from from families. Um, The neighbors decorating the house. Some getting invited to, not getting invited to a party that other people get invited to. People talking about getting their kids expensive gifts that we can't afford and on and on and on, almost on a daily basis. And the anxiety that that produces is a problem in and of itself. But in addition to that, comparison can ignite a flame of jealousy that can lead to envy spiraling into eventually despair. And jealousy is just wanting what someone else has and envy goes further than that if we entertain jealousy that that grows into envy and envy is not only wanting what they have but being really bothered and even upset that they have it and having difficulty rejoicing and and being happy for them that they have it and if envy continues that can spiral into self-pity discouragement anger and eventually despair so comparison can be really toxic and uh, there are some things that we can do though to, to combat comparison since the basis of comparison is really our, our security and some sense of okayness that we have. We really need to examine the basis of our okayness. When we find ourselves comparing, 
then we need to stop and think, wait a minute, what, what is the basis of my okayness here? And as, as followers of Christ, the basis of our okayness really comes from what Jesus did on the cross. And what he did, the sacrifice he made, is what makes us okay. That allows us to actually choose to stop comparing. Because comparison is a choice. The Bible says it's foolish for us to compare ourselves with each other. Since God has made us okay in Christ, we need to resist the temptation to believe anything else and tell ourselves instead what what the truth is. And we need to learn to be content with what we have um, and resist the temptation to base our our okayness on what we have or don't have in comparison to other people. And then that will allow us to rejoice in what other people have and resist the knee-jerk response to resist or or to resent what others have that we don't. In fact, we can even get to the point where we say out loud and to ourselves uh, that we're we're really glad for what people have and we rejoice with them. Can you identify with some of that? Just the, the what he's describing and then the spiral. You know, comparison is a close cousin of jealousy. I want to kind of, this is so important. He, he, he talks about where it leads and it's so damaging. So look at this. Desire, this is how the process starts. Desire is, I want something and I long for it. We have that. We have desires. There are things that we all want. Whether it's possessions or a person or a circumstance or a career. We just desire these things and we just start longing and obsessing over it. And then that can lead to coveting. Coveting is we want something someone else has. So now they possess the desires that we have. We start coveting that. We start crossing some lines here. And then that leads to envy. And envy is this. I covet something that another person has and then resentment begins to take root because you know they have it. We start... And envy, it's, it starts rotting, Scripture says. The bones. Envy rots the bones. And so, envy moves to jealousy full-blown. You know, I envy another person and I feel that, they, that my rights have been violated. And then I begin to treat them as the enemy. As an, as an enemy. So I'm jealous of them. And this can spiral from there. We can actually draw out. This moves to despair and depression. And, and he, he throws out a bunch of terms of what he's experienced in working with people. But just highlights why this is so dangerous. Why we need to evaluate what to do with it. He mentions some real common ways that we compare. I mean, someone at your work gets a promotion. They get a job and your, your job stays the same. You don't want to be jealous, but they got what you wanted. Someone, someone gets an amazing new car for Christmas and, and you're excited for them because they needed a new car. But, you know, like the whole experience, you see it on Facebook or Instagram, there's a bow wrapped around it. Someone, you know, did just like the commercials and they, they walk out and they see it and you're like, man, what about, what about me? You know, I've been driving this car for 10 years and you're, you're trying to grind through the gears. It's, you know, and you're, or you hear news of people celebrating you know, at parties, and, and and you feel alone. You wish you could experience the same kind of thing. And then there's the gift giving. So all, all of this combined creates this downward spiral. And so Jesus, he shows us, how, how do we overcome this? And so I want to walk through a story that Jesus told. 
And it's tucked between two important conversations that Jesus had with some of his followers, okay? So the parable in Matthew 20 that you see in your outline here, it's, it's stuffed between two interactions. The first interaction preceding the parable is this. Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, very close, you know, follower of Jesus. And Peter wants to clarify, hey Jesus, what is the reward that I'm gonna get for giving up everything? Cause you know, I've, I'm following you and, and I've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. And so what's my reward gonna look like? And, and what about that guy over there? Peter starts making a reference to another disciple and, and Jesus just says, hey, don't worry about him. Follow me, Peter. Just follow me. So, that's, that's what leads up to the parable that we're going to read. And then after the parable comes this. So we're going to look at the parable. But after you see in Matthew 20, verse 20, shortly after, you have James and John, two other disciples of Jesus, jockeying for position in the kingdom. And so G- James and John's mom, hey Jesus, you know, can you grant that, that my sons have prominent positions in the kingdom? Can they sit on the right hand and the left hand of you when you enter your kingdom? And, and Jesus corrects you know, the whole situation. and But clearly, these dialogues that are going on, these interactions with Jesus' close followers, highlights the fact that the comparison is a problem. For the followers of Christ, for the disciples, this was a problem. Certainly for us, it's an issue. So let's, let's look at this uh, from Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16. You can follow along. It says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius was the normal daily pay for a laborer. And so you have this master. He goes to the union hall or he goes to the employment agency. He hires some people who need work. And they're actively looking for for work. And the master of the house represents God who chooses who he wants and he provides what he decides. Okay? He chooses and He provides. That's what the Master does. He hires these workers and at the start of what would be a 12-hour workday, there's a group that begins to work at 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay, So He finds these guys. He puts them to work at 6 in the morning. They're in for a 12-hour workday. And He says, you're going to earn a denarius for your day of work. Then you come to verse 3. And going out, About the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again. About the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So the first crew of workers, they had an agreement, remember? Full day worth of work for a full day's pay, a denarius. These workers were told by the master, Hey, go to work, I'll do what's right by you. And so they had to trust the master and get to work. Okay, They just had to trust that he was going to pay them for the work that he, he would. Or for the work that they did. They, they trusted him. Now the third hour is 9 o'clock in the morning. Okay, So there was, a, there was the 6 a.m. guys. Then there's this third hour group at 9 o'clock. Then there's the sixth hour, which is a different group at 12 noon. He hires some more guys. And then, and then the ninth hour is 3 o'clock. He gets some more. So these guys... You know, have nine hours, six hours, and three hour workdays, the second group of people, okay? And then in verse six it says this, and about the eleventh hour, okay, he went out and he found others standing and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. Well, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So this last group, 
has been waiting and they haven't been hired all day long. And I'm sure they're thinking at this point, man, we've been passed over today. We'll try again tomorrow. But the owner of the vineyard, he spots them. He hires them to work the remaining hour of the work day. Okay? He hires them. You guys can work in the vineyard for the, for the final hour. But they, don't, they only have to put in one hour worth of work. Then the end of the day comes and it's paycheck time and Jesus describes the scene in verse, in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, that last group of workers came, each of them received a denarius. So the master starts handing out paychecks to the one hour workday crew, and they receive a full day's wage. The same thing promised to the 12-hour workday crew. And the 12-hour workday crew is starting to probably do the math in their head as they're watching, and their expectations for their own pay starts going through the roof. Like, oh my gosh, this is great. These guys, they made a denarius in an hour. We should get 12. I mean, you can imagine they were thinking like, you know, they're spending the money already. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to go buy that new donkey. I'm going to go buy the, the you know, I'm going to upgrade the roof. I, I, I'm... You know, get some new clothes. This is, this is like a bonus. Now the story continues. Okay, verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now when those hired first came, when, the, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, you know... Pause there. When the 12-hour crew receives you know, their pay, they get the amount in their contract, right? He's, uh, he told them one denarius. And they're not happy with it. Notice what they're complaining about. They're basically saying, look, you have made them equal to us. And there's something deep inside of us that wants to be more significant than others. There's something deep inside of us that wants to see ourselves as more special and, and gain a leg up on others. And this crew was no different. Okay, Their expectations got the best of them. Now check out the master's response. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. This is, this is so helpful. I'm, I'm not doing any you any wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius take what belongs to you and go I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last now here's a summary of the master's response okay stay vertical in appraising your circumstances and you'll not go sideways Stay vertical. Like, keep it between you and God, your circumstances. Keep relating to God. Pay attention to what He's doing in your life. Respond to Him. But stay vertical. If you do that, you won't go sideways when you evaluate your circumstances. Don't compare yourself to people, you know, horizontally in your life. Don't, don't look at their circumstances and start comparing your family, your friends. This phrase, the last will be first and the first is last is basically saying God is not using an earthly measure to evaluate who's going to receive honor in His kingdom. He's not using an earthly measure so trust Him. Just trust Him. Let's walk back through this draw some lessons out. How to overcome the waves of comparison. Number one, set realistic expectations. Set realistic 
expectations. From verse 10, he says, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. The master was just in his pay. He was just, wasn't he? But the problem grew when the workers, they let their expectations grow wild. So to deal with comparison, we just have to keep our mind on a leash and reel in our own thoughts about things. Like things like the amount of praise we hope we're going to receive or the amount of reward we hope we're going to receive in the here and now for the work that we've done. You just have to set very, very realistic expectations on our lives. Another lesson. Stop comparing when you start to grumble. This got them into trouble. They started grumbling and giving in more to comparison. So verses 11 and 12. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. It's, it's so easy to start down the road of complaining when someone else gets the very thing that you wanted. The extravagant gift, the bonus, the meaningful outing with their family. And you really wanted those. You desired those things. Instead of grumbling in our heart, what we need to do is this. We need to stop it and refuse to compare. We need to tell ourselves, sometimes we need to walk over to a mirror and say, stop it. Stop it. This is getting you nowhere. Whether you say it out loud or you just, in your mind, you just realize, this is getting me nowhere. This kind of thinking is only making me spiral downward. And then another thing you can do after you talk to yourself in the mirror is you can make a list of all that God has given you and thank Him in gratitude. Make a list of, of all that God has given and thank Him in gratitude. Just, God, let's talk about what you have done lately. You've done a whole lot. Let's just, let's be honest with what God has provided. And sometimes when, at our house, when we realize there's a lot of complaining, then we need to we need to stop. We do this thing occasionally where it's like, okay, everyone needs to say five things they're grateful for. Five things. Go. And you're like, oh. And you're struggling to come up with any. And if you don't have a good idea, you just start over. Five more. Start over. And make a list. But the, the point here is stop the complaining, the grumbling, and start... The gratitude, the thankfulness. Third thing here, accept your current circumstances in faith. Accept your current circumstances in faith. Verses 13 and 14, look again at this. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. So just again, keep your thoughts vertical on the Master. You and the Master... Keep your thoughts vertical on God's dealing with you and don't go horizontal and start comparing yourself with other people. There's a very, very helpful book written in the early 1700s. It's a short read. Here's the, here's the cover of the book. It's called The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. It's about God's sovereignty and wisdom displayed in our afflictions in life. And you see there's this piece of wood there with a knot in the wood. This this. Some would call it like, you know, it's not a perfect piece of wood. Or maybe, you know, nowadays reclaimed wood is worth a lot of money. But, but you want knots in your wood. But, you know, it's... Some other book covers of The Crooked Lot have like a crooked road. Just the way that the road turns. But the issue here is that the author of this book, he launches from Ecclesiastes 7.3. A verse in the Old Testament that says, Who can make straight 
what God has made crooked. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And the author of this book, he, he, he brings up the point that God has put a crook in everyone's lot. He's put, he's, he's put some crooked things in our lot. Our lot meaning our life. There's some things that are just crooked about our lives. Which, that's made up of different kinds of trouble. It represents adversity. And things that just continue on for a long period of time. Things we can't change about our circumstances. You know, and we need to accept our lot in life with its unique crook. If we don't accept it, then we start getting resentful and bitter and jealous. And God, He's not able to fulfill His purposes in us if we're unwilling to accept the crooks in our, in our life. And my crook, you know, could be related to job trouble. Your crook could be connected to relationship problems. Some people's might have to do with a physical problem. Others might be dealing with financial catastrophe. In some cases, it could be a decision that I made that was a bad decision. In some cases, it might be a decision someone else made that was a bad decision, but it's now impacting me for the rest of my life. It's a crook in the lot. And the way forward is to not complain or compare your trouble and the crook in your life with others. There's just no understanding that comes from that. There's no profit in comparison, the Scripture says. And so we only make progress when we accept our lot before the Lord and ask Him to help to bring Him glory and fulfill His purposes through these things. The waves of comparison, they are sure to roll into our lives and knock us down and hold us there if we don't choose faith in the One who is doing right by us, who is just. And so we don't need to make sense out of all the circumstances that come, but we, we just need God, I trust you. I trust you with these circumstances that I'm facing. And in God's kingdom, the last will be first. The first will be last. God's kingdom, has, He has an upside-down way of reward compared to the way we view things in this world. And so, He often catches us off guard in that. And so, I hope this has been helpful for you as you're considering both last week and this week just some of the pressures that we face this time. I want to I want to pray. Encourage you to, to wrap up uh, this morning by maybe jotting down some application points for your own life. Uh, read, read through Matthew again. Read through this passage again. And maybe further reflect on how does this apply to your life? And consider, just kind of walk through it. Pray back through it. And then second, you know, along with that as you're studying, identify a wave of comparison. What is, what is hitting you currently in this regard to, to comparing? And how, how do you overcome that? Just try to think through this week. God, what do you want me to do with this? Let's pray together. God, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your word and how as we dig into it, Lord, we, we find real life. It's not just stories that, uh, and niceties that we can just you know, pause that and sigh out. But really, you, you, you've given us your word so we can be effective in life. And we can move forward. We can make progress and walk with you. So we ask you for your help, God, to apply these truths to our life. We, we ask you to um, bring, the, bring the right perspective as we face the different challenges and thoughts that, that we're encountering currently. Thank you, Lord, for the circumstances that You've brought our way to grow us, to shape us, to train us, to keep us close to You, Lord. We're so grateful for the fact that we know You. We, We do not deserve to be able to be in a relationship with the God of the universe. We don't deserve that. Because of our sin, Lord, we were cut off from knowing You, but You made a way through Your Son 
for us to have that gap bridged and we could know you and relate to a holy and loving God. So thank you for that, Lord. Help us never to lose sight of that, especially at this time, Lord. Would you set the right perspective in our hearts, Lord, at Christmas time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.